Uh, how do I say this? It doesn't sound uh, sacrilegious or something, but if there was a passage I was least looking forward to, <laughs> not least looking forward to benefiting from, just the, the, the responsibility to preach it. Um, many, many uh, pastors would break this passage up into smaller chunks, and I, I, you know, early on I decided let's just go for it, the whole thing. We're going to go 1018 all the way to 1132. 1018 all the way to 1132. And at first, the question that I'm going to address, at least in the beginning, may not feel that relevant. It may not feel as relevant a sermon as a sermon on marriage or a sermon on uh, politics, a sermon on working in a secular workplace or how to share your faith or something that we can do something about, you know, on Monday. But those of you who have been Christians for a while, you may have become aware of heated debates with regard to Israel. And I guess, not ironically, that very much plays into politics for many. You know, on one hand, you have groups of Christians who view the people of Israel as so central, so core uh, to God, to God's plan, to what God has done, is doing, will do, that you cannot question anything about Israel. It, it is, you have to wave the Israel flag, you have to support them politically, you have to give them a pass on whatever they do kind of thing. They may not say it that way, but it kind of seems that way. Because they are God's people. The church is kind of like this happy accident on the side, Right? but Israel actually is the main thing. I've sat in classes where professors say, you know those verses in the Old Testament that you like to quote? And the student's like, yeah. And it's like, that's not about you. That's about us, Israel. Okay. So there's one side of things. Then over here you have another group of people, another group of Christians, that every time the word Israel appears in Scripture, they're like, ah, this just means the church. Because God is done with his ethnic people. They rejected God. They crucified his Savior, and he's done with them. He's moved on, and he's opened the doors up to all kinds of people outside of Israel. And as these two different groups appear, and they argue about their texts, and they argue about Scripture, and they argue about politics, you have this side accusing this side of giving Israel a pass no matter what they do, even though a people that have rejected God, you know, is it, is it questionable that they should be supported blindly? They are not in covenant relationship with God. They are disobedient. They rejected God. But then this side over here reject, accuses this side over here of being anti-Semitic. The reason why we had Nazi Germany. The reason why Luther has made some off-color comments that us Reformed folk like to pretend Luther never said. Um... And, and some Christians are, are so tightly wound in one of those camps that they can't see things any other way. And it's become very difficult to navigate through the chaos, to be frank. Uh, I want to push through a large portion of text. I want to get the whole thing out in front of us. Instead of piecemealing it and sort of two verbs each Sunday will be in Romans forever. Not that I mind being in Romans, but we kind of lose the, the argument. We lose the flow of thought when we do it that way. So I'm going to pray and ask you to pray with me uh, that we can make sense and get some of the clutter cleared. So 
when you hear Christians that are zealous on this side or zealous on that side, you have a little bit more of an understanding. And then towards the end, we'll start to see a little bit more relevance to us besides just clearing the Christian clutter. But I think we do, I think we do need to do that. It is not rare for someone to come to a church, love the church, ooh, wrong position on Israel, and bounce. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and people wear it very closely to their hearts, as we should, because we're, we're talking about Scripture and what God says. And Romans 11 has been a battleground for people on, on both sides, and I'm going to completely resolve all of that in one sermon. That's not going to happen, but pray that uh, at least it's not a mess. Father, we, uh, we approach your word with humility, and we ask that you would... Uh, Allow the clear things to be clear, allow unclear things to be unclear, and allow us to be okay with that. And we pray that we would walk away with a a better understanding, that we wouldn't be intimidated by Romans 10 and 11, that we would enjoy it and long to dig in it deeper. Be with me and help me to, to not be in the way of that clarity. And may your Holy Spirit minister to our hearts the profit, the value that these words in your scripture afford us and we ask it in jesus name amen without further ado please turn to romans chapter 10 right at the end of romans chapter 10 romans chapter 10 and we're picking up where we left off last time which is right at verse 18 you might look at it and go wow he sounds like he's in the middle of an argument he is i had to cut it somewhere but we are stepping into the middle of an argument Uh, that's why he starts with, but I ask, okay, he just established that Gentiles are coming in droves, even then in Paul's day, Paul's a missionary to the Gentiles and they're coming in all over the place. And he says that that's true because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone from anywhere, in any situation, any ethnicity, any background, whether you've heard the Bible or not before, whether you've heard the message or not before, When you hear the message, it's beautiful and it's good news and it doesn't matter where you come from or where you are, God's snatching people to himself from all over the place. Uh, For you and I, we're like, that's great. That's great. But as Paul is writing, he's imagining those in his audience that are Jewish, ethnically Jewish, and they're like, all these hundreds of years, the prophets are ours, we're the ones that wrote Scripture, Jesus is a Jew, he came from us. What about all that? Doesn't matter? So as he's talking about the gospel has to be heard in order to be saved, and people go out, what about Israel? That's where we pick up off in verse 18. He says, but I ask, have they not heard Israel? Has Israel not heard? Well, they have heard. Indeed, they have. For, and quoting the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the world, and their words to the ends of the world. So has Israel heard? He says, yes, they've heard. Now he does something here that I'm tempted to skip over because it would make the sermon a lot faster, but if I were you sitting out there and I looked up Psalm 19 and read it, I'd be disappointed. Because it's a weird argument that he's making. He says, yes, Israel has heard, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. If you go back and look up Psalm 19, what Paul is quoting is a psalm that says, that the mountains and the trees and the ocean and all of creation shouts out to all the world that he's God. The reason why that's weird is because he's, he's 
sounds like he's answering, have the Gentiles heard? And he's not. He's answering, have the Israelites heard? And then he goes to a verse that talks about how everybody's heard, even outside of Israel. That's what Psalm 19 is talking about. God is shouting out his goodness through creation to everybody. That's the verse you want to quote when you're explaining to an Israelite, it's not just for you, it's for everybody. And it was always supposed to be for everybody. Remember Psalm 19? Now, if you read Psalm 19, the first six verses are talking about all of creation. And then verses 7 through 11 get specific about Scripture. Now, the whole world didn't get Scripture. Who got Scripture? Israel did. I think what Paul's doing is going, remember Psalm 19? I don't have a whole lot of parchment to go into Psalm 19, but you remember Psalm 19, right? And Psalm 19 said God is going to speak to all the world. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, you remember the rest of Psalm 19? How the whole world gets God's message, message through nature, but only Israel got the specific message through Scripture. Oh yeah, we did get that. So Paul's argument is, not only has the whole world gotten the message, Israel got that message, plus the specific message of Scripture. Of course they've heard. Then when you read the end of Psalm 19, the prayer at the end of Psalm 19 is, Lord, given all of your creation's message, and given the specific message that you've given us, would you help us to live repentant lives? Would you help us? And Paul's just digging it in like, they didn't finish Psalm 19, did they? Even though they got the message from nature and they got the message from Scripture, they haven't listened. They did get the message, but they haven't listened. Then he says in verse 19, another question, but I asked, did Israel not understand? Okay, they got the message, but did, did they get it? And he says in verse 19, he quotes Moses and then Isaiah. He says, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have found by those who did not seek me. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now, when he read that, I'm like, huh, I thought what he meant was that they understand the message of the gospel. And I don't think that's what Paul means. What Paul's saying is, did they understand this grand scheme that God has to expose Israel to not only message, the message through nature and the message through Scripture, but that they wouldn't obey and that he would choose someone else? Did they understand that? Did they understand that this would be happening, what Paul's been talking about in these past chapters, that Israel disobeys, rejects it, but then it goes out to all the world and Gentiles are coming in. All these other ethnicities are coming in in droves. Did they understand that? And Paul's saying they should have because this is what Moses said. I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. It's kind of like you're a dad, you buy your kid a bike and your kid's like, ah, bike, that's so stupid. And you're like, all right, and you give it to the neighbor kid. And the neighbor kid's just riding it around town. And then the kid's like, oh man, hey, that's my bike all of a sudden. Now I want it. And what God is saying is, that, that's not me telling you that because it's Paul. Moses said that. Hey, Isaiah said that. I've been, I, it's going to be said that I've been found by people who didn't seek me, that I show myself to those who didn't ask for me. Remember when Jesus used the wedding analogy? This wedding is for these guests, and these guests are like, nah, I don't want to go to that wedding. I don't want to go to that party. He's like, all right. So he tells the servants, go ask everybody from the streets, and we're going to fill these seats with somebody else than the original invitation list. Paul is saying, Jesus didn't make that up. I'm not making it up. It's from the Old Testament. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, 
All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now right there, remember I told you, this group, every time you see the word Israel, they just say, well, Israel's the church. It can't be the church, because he says in verse 21, of Israel, he says, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, is the church a disobedient and contrary people? These are the people that are in. So of course he means ethnic Israel. Let's just, let's just part of clearing the clutter. Both sides tend to choose when Israel means the spiritual church and when Israel means the ethnic people, when it suits their theology. And what we want to do is try our best to take it at face value and not go, wait, but the guy on the radio says, the school I graduated from taught, or that's not what the commentaries on my shelf have said. If I take this position, does that mean I'm not reformed? Let's, let's try to take it on face value and it sounds like he's talking about a people that had a specific message from Moses, the people that had a specific message from Isaiah, and didn't listen to it. They didn't fulfill Psalm 19, and so they're stuck in a place of being contrary to God, verse 21. They're in a place of being in disobedience before God, verse 21. Now, I'm not answering the question right here, whether they're the apple of his eye, whether they're core to his plan, or anything like that. So far, we just see... They are a people that had privilege, they spurned it, and now they're in a, a place of rebellion and lostness. And that this didn't take God by surprise, he called it. And what he's starting to hint at here is God didn't just go, I guess I just give up on humanity. He's like, okay, Israel, you were supposed to be the lighthouse to humanity, but what I'm going to do is take those people to whom you were supposed to be in effect, and they're going to be the ones they're going to be the ones that I bring in, and you're going to watch from the sidelines and be jealous. So he starts verse 11 with another question. I love that style of Paul, just kind of this Q&A style that he has. And he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Because so far, that's what it sounds like. So far in my sermon, this group could be like, see? He's done with them. He is... He has divorced them. They were unfaithful to him. He had the right to divorce them. They've committed adultery over and over and over. And then when he sent the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ himself, and performed miracles in front of them, what did they do? They killed him. So God has rejected them. He is done with them. He's moved on. Ooh, uh-oh. Chapter 11, verse 1. No, he has not. And we can't switch now. Oh, now he's talking about spiritual Israel. That, that wouldn't make sense. Has God rejected his people? Which people? The ethnic people that I just finished talking about. Has God rejected ethnic Israel? No is Paul's answer. I don't care what commentaries are on your shelf or what tradition you're from. That's what Paul says. It might look like he's done with them. It might look, well, they're, they're in reje they reject God. Paul doesn't say, you blindly vote. He doesn't say, you know, we all should have flags in our churches, the Israeli flag or something like that. He's saying that God is not done with them. He hasn't finally rejected them. In 11 verse 1, I asked then, has God rejected his people, his ethnic people, Israel? By no means. Now here's his argument. He doesn't say, even though they're disobedient, they're still in. They're still in. Don't worry about it. No. One argument is, well, he hasn't completely been done with them because I'm Jewish and I'm in. <laughs> I mean, it's the simplest argument that you could think of. Paul's like, well, 
I'm an exception, at least, at least there's one that is both ethnic Israel and in the church. There's at least one living proof that just by being an Israelite doesn't mean you've been cast off because Israelites come to Christ. Maybe not in droves, but I'm one. So it says, God rejected his people by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, we, we're, we're trying to catch up with our Ancestry.com and trying to create trees. This was everything to them. What tribe were you? What's your lineage? How Jewish are you? And he's like, I'm Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. I'm a descendant of Abraham, physically a descendant of Abraham. He's not talking about, I'm a spiritual son of the father Abraham. No, no, no. Although he is that. His point is, his being a physical, ethnic uh, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Judah, has not closed him off from receiving the gospel. It is possible for someone to be a Jew and come to Christ. He says, that's true of me. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the people in this camp that say God is, he's just done with them, he's divorced them. They're wrong. I'll just say it from the pulpit. They are wrong. And the reason why they're wrong is because Paul points to the Old Testament, God's foreknowledge, election, and all of that. Our actions don't undo that. We, we can't claim assurance of salvation, God elects, and you can't unelect, and then also claim that he dumped ethnic Israel. You, you can't have both of those. Because throughout the letter of Romans, Paul is arguing, if he did one here, he, what's to say he won't do the other one? If he divorces here, who's to say he won't divorce the church? No, 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 he doesn't divorce. He might let the adultery linger for a long time. That, that bride might be out of the house for a long time, but he's not ultimately done. First exhibit A, Paul says, I'm one. So we know that every single Jew is not in this place of disobedience and rejection. Number two, God has planned this from the beginning. He promised he wouldn't let them go. He promised he wouldn't let them go. He holds them. And by holding them, he, he, he means some of these ethnic Jews are going to stay in. They're like, really? He goes, really? You remember Elijah? And then he points to it. Now, you may not remember this episode, but it's awesome. It's encouraging. If you've ever felt like you're the only one following God, you're the only one in your family, you're the only one on your block, you're the only one at work, he goes, remember Elijah? Do you not know what Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what Paul is saying is, you remember back in Elijah's day, Elijah thought he was alone. Elijah thought he was literally the only one left. Now, 7,000 sounds like a big number. On the grand scheme of things, it's, it's really not a big number. 7,000 is not that many people when you take an entire nation into account. An entire nation? 7,000? You can see why Elijah felt alone. He doesn't even personally know one other person who is, hasn't committed idolatry. But God opens up Elijah and says, look, Elijah, you don't see everything. I've got 7,000 of you running around. I keep a people to myself. Now, that's a very small minority, but that doesn't mean they've all rejected. 
It means that God has saved the remnant. He keeps a people to himself, even though it might be few, even though they might be a minority. And that's been true from Old Testament times, and Paul said that's what's happening now. I'm one of them. And that this has always been by grace. It's never been by works. If you start talking about works, you're going to cancel grace. That's why he says it would, it would no longer be grace. He doesn't mean that in the Old Testament it wasn't by grace, and that now it's different. He's just saying, logically, if you start arguing that, that we can attain this through works, then, the, the, then we're erasing the entire message that we've been talking about. The entire gospel we've been talking about is erased. So that, he's saying it's always been by grace. It's been by grace in Elijah's time, that by grace there were 7,000 plus Elijah, that by grace now Paul has been kept, and that God has always worked his grace to keep at least some of the Israelites faithful to himself. But then he says in verse 7, what then? Israel failed, like what's the result? What's, what's the deal now? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now this is tough, this is hard, but listen. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears they would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever, or probably better translated, bend their backs continually in a continual way. Not that there can ever be nothing different in the future. But this persistent bending of the back, this enslavement, this heavy yoke of slavery, works has become the thing that kills them their exposure to the law just made it worse for them the table set before them this covenant table it just became a trap for them because they thought hey we're on top of the world we're the apple of god's eye let us not forget that the guise under which they killed jesus was because jesus was a blasphemer See, they, they didn't say, well, forget Yahweh. They're like, no, in Yah- for Yahweh, for you, Yahweh, we're going to kill this false prophet. They're still seeking relationship with God, but they're seeking it their way, not God's way. And when God says, no, no, seriously, this way, they're like, no, we're going to kill that. And so Paul says they're lost, but he doesn't just say they're lost. What's difficult about this is that God intentionally keeps the remnant small. God intentionally hardens, blinds, gives a spirit of stupor. If this is surprising to you, I encourage you to read through the Old Testament to get a a better picture of how God operates in the world. You remember back when we talked about the hardening of Pharaoh in earlier chapters in Romans? I think it would be wrong, in fact I know it would be wrong, to claim that you've got somebody who innocently is a worshiper, loves God, and God goes, no, 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 no. You're worshiping me in spirit and truth, but I'm going to change your heart, your soft, beautiful, cuddly, warm heart, and I'm going to harden it now. No, when you read through Scripture, the best way to view it, of course, Scripture tells us God is not the author of confusion, God doesn't sin, nor does he tempt someone to sin. How do you put the two together? The way you put the two together is you don't start with a heart that's soft and cuddly and warm and wants God. It already doesn't want God. But what God does is go, okay, I'm going to disallow them from seeing it 
to accomplish something else for a while. He's not making them sin. He's handing them over to that sin that they're already in. That is God's hardening. We talked last week. Is God obligated to give mercy? No. Is he obligated to do justice? Yes. And what is just? That nobody is given access to the gospel. That would be just. What Paul is saying is, God is not up there going, ah, the Jewish people, ah, I really failed with them. I really messed up. He's like, no, no, no. I'm using them. Now think about this. If the Jews didn't reject Jesus, would you be here? Paul's saying probably not. It's by virtue of their hardening and rejection of Jesus that the Gentiles got here. That doesn't mean we're going, yes, I love that the Jews are in this position. But we're not for God doing that. As much as we might gulp when we read something like that, Paul is saying this is how the Gentiles got in. Read with me. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And then he says, uh, after quoting the verse that says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Then verse 9, that the table became a, a snare and a trap. Their eyes are darkened so they can't see. He says in verse 11, so I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall so that they can be erased, so that they might fall permanently, he means, by no means. So why did he do that then, Paul? He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now here's two quick points we can make from that. One, Israel's failure means you got in. Second, it still ain't about you. The reason why he's using their failure to bring in the Gentiles is so that he can bring in so many Gentiles it makes the Israelites jealous. And he's going to do something with that jealousy. It, the whole game is still about Israel. And that's okay. That doesn't make me a dispensationalist. That doesn't make me a, 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 a blind student of, I don't want to name names, but you know, uh, it's what it's saying. Did they stumble so that they could just fall? And then God is like, well, I guess they fell. Let me go get somebody else. No. God is orchestrating things. God is doing things on purpose. That doesn't mean he made Israel sin, but he's using their sin and letting them stay ensconced in it for a while, for a long time, to bring Gentiles in. And why is he doing that? To make Israel jealous. Verse 12, he says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We're going to pack this a little more in a second because he returns to this point. But just, just real quickly, you might read this. If you're carefully reading this, you might go, okay, God had this people Israel, and then he's rejected them. And to make them jealous, he's going to raise up these Gentiles. What's to say he won't do that with the Gentiles? What if... As Israel gets jealous, they're like, never mind, I do want the bike. The good father goes, great, that's what I thought. I knew giving that bike to the neighbor would make you want the bike, and now that you appreciate it, here's the bike. Now, if you're a Gentile, are you getting nervous with this illustration? Because you were enjoying that bike for a minute, weren't you? And then suddenly, you don't have that bike. The dad was like, never mind, it's actually my kids. That, that, make, that would make me nervous. You're making me nervous, Paul. Is God going to flip it on us now? Listen to what he says. If the trespasses of Israel means riches for the world, if Israel's failure means success for the Gentiles, 
If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So what he's saying is that illustration, to continue with that illustration, if, if the jealousy and of the child who lost the bike means a gift for the neighbor, when the child does get the bike, the, the, the answer isn't then the neighbor doesn't get it anymore. How much more will the neighborhood get if, he, if the son gets it, if the kid gets it? It's more for everybody else, not the opposite. Such that God doesn't have one ticket. Israel rejected the ticket. I'm going to give the ticket to the Gentiles. Oh, Israel's jealous? Never mind. Snatch it from the Gentiles. Give it to the Israelites. Paul's saying he's got tickets for them, for them, for them, for them, for them. And God's plan is to use their jealousy to get them back in. Not to erase the Gentiles. Gentiles forever will be happy that they were included in this whole plan because of that original rejection. But if Israel is made jealous and prompted to return to the Lord because of that jealousy, that doesn't negate Gentiles, he's saying, how much more? If Israel's not even helping us with this thing right now. Israel, the, the authors of Scripture, they're not even helping us right now evangelize the world. They've rejected Christ. Imagine Israel was in. How much more would that mean for the Gentiles? Not less, more. So he says in verse 13, all right, Gentiles, now I'm going to talk to you. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, verse 13. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He's, my whole ministry is to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. I mean, you can imagine Paul sitting at a, his version of a Starbucks and talking with uh, a Jewish, a fellow Jew and say, man, these apostles, they're going out, these other disciples, they're going out, and these people are being saved. I've baptized Galatians. I've baptized Ephesians. I've sent Timothy to go minister to the Ephesians. They're such great, they're such great worshipers of God. Shouldn't you be in? They're reading the scriptures that you wrote. They're reading the oracles that were originally given to you. Previously, they only had natural revelation, but now they're being exposed to scripture. You've had both. He wants to prompt a jealousy in them, not to make them go cry in a corner, but to turn. Why? Why do I know that? Because he says to make the Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul doesn't have a better plan than God. Paul's saying that is God's plan. The reason why God wants to provoke jealousy in the people of Israel is to save some of them. Verse 15, if, for if their rejection, there's the point again, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if he started here, it's only going to get bigger and better. It's not going to cancel out other things. It's just going to get bigger and better. Now when he says, and I'll throw this in here hopefully really quickly, but when he says that their rejection means reconciliation from the world, their acceptance means life from the dead. Some people mean, some people think that means when Israel is provoked to jealousy and they come to God in one huge revival, then the physical resurrection will happen right there. Boom. I don't know about that. I think that's pressing the text. I think what he's saying is it, you don't have to be worried that God is going to divorce the Gentiles, okay? He, this plan is big and it has many branches and this tree is, it has no limit to how big this tree is going to get. He, he's not trying to lay out a chart 
of when the rapture is and when the millennium is. This is not this passage. I think it's foisting too much on the text to go into those particular details. And then we lose the greatness of what he's saying. When we just start pulling out whiteboards and trying to figure out, wait a minute, the nation Israel here, Russia that, this politician this, if this politician takes over, then maybe this happens. Maybe the rapture's tomorrow. We're so far afield from what Paul's doing in this text. He wants to make sure that the Gentile readers don't feel like they might be left out in the future so that they can get excited. They can get excited about the return of the Jews because God's not going to take it away from the Gentiles. Now, verse 17, he gives us a warning, though. He gives us a warning. Verse 17, he says, Now, but if some of the branches were broken off, in other words, let's imagine you have this tree, and this tree is righteousness by faith, that God counts righteousness to you, he credits righteousness to your account because you put faith in him like Abraham did. So like this tree of Abraham, and you're a part of that tree by faith. Well, what happened to the Israelites that didn't have faith? They had all the external trappings, but they didn't have faith. They were cut off. Now, the Gentiles could be like, wow, flip it on these, you know, don't be cocky because you're a Jew. Actually, you should be cocky if you're a Gentile because you're out. Here's the warning. Verse 17, if some of the branches, those natural Israelite branches were broken off, and you, the wild unnatural branches, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing tree, nourishing root of the olive tree, you've been brought into this thing, don't be arrogant toward the branches that were cut off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root. The root supports you. You didn't create the tree because it's by faith. This is something God has done, and it's God's work. It's by grace, not by works. Verse 19, then you'll say, branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That is so awesome. Well, that is true, verse 20. They were broken off because of your unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. You are not hot stuff. There's nothing to be arrogant about. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You see how there's a priority to Israel? The people that he started with, the people that he, that he wrote Scripture through, the people through whom we got the Messiah. Man, if he can break those branches off, why, why, would, he, why would he keep Puerto Ricans around? Why would he keep Filipinos around? Why would he keep Irish people around? They don't have the pedigree. They don't have the, the, those original words that God spoke, those oracles. You don't, they don't have that. That doesn't mean they're out, but that doesn't mean you get cocky on those original branches. He's directly going against anti-Semitism here. You cannot get anti-Semitism from Scripture without twisting it beyond recognition. It is a kind of arrogance that leads you to dark places, as we historically know. And God will straight up cut you down. If you think you have privilege by not being Jewish. No, that's incorrect. You don't even belong in the tree, man. You got grafted in because God is an awesome gardener. That's how you got there. So fear, by, fear that. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And then verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. If you've been sitting listening to these sermons and going through Romans, you're like, wow, God is loving, but wow, God is really hard to 
grasp. Puts a lump in my throat, also warms my heart. He's like, yeah. <laughs> Note both. The kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, those who presume upon his kindness, they're not the ones that are grafted in. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You are out. If you think, yeah, I go to church, I take communion, yeah, grace, I said the prayer, I'm good, go live however I want. Mm, No, no. Verse 23, and even if they, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So, are people coming in from all over the world to the gospel? Yes. Do you remember the revivals of America? I mean, not were you there, do you remember them, but I mean, we read about them, we hear about them, the Wesleys, Jonathan Edwards, no microphones, just out there, God said, and there's people coming in droves. Immigrants, Native Americans, left and right. What happened to that? What happened to that? The hearts of American Christianity has, has grown cold. Or even the faithful, even the faithful seem to kind of just dial it in minimally sometimes. Where is it hot right now? South America, different parts of Asia. We cannot, as a people that are Gentiles or a mix of Gentiles, get cocky and go, yeah, see, the the center of gravity has shifted to us. Man, it could shift away like that if we don't continue in our belief, if we don't grasp that both kindness and severity, knowing you cannot play with God. He is the gardener, and just like you, If you're knowledgeable enough, you want to save this beautiful plant that was given to you, it's precious to you, and you see a bunch of stuff withering on it, you don't go, I can't can't cut those withering branches. I have to leave it alone. Don't you dare cut it. No, you cut the withering things to prune the plant so that the plant will live. And God is not a neglectful gardener. And people who are dead weight in churches will be cut off. We cannot presume because of our ethnicity, we this ethnicity or not that ethnicity, that God is doing a plan that keeps me in because he's doing this plan. We can't predict the gardener except to say that we know what he prunes off. And it's disobedient, cold-hearted people that might claim to know God but really don't. That's the severity. He's not severe in an unfair way. He's severe like a gardener is toward the branches that are making it harder for the, brand, the plant to grow because they're dead on the vine. And he provides a warning in verse 22, otherwise you will be cut off. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. No matter how disobedient Israel has gotten, there's hope. There's hope for Israel. He says in verse 24, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, you don't even belong in the tree, but God got you in. You were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these natural branches be back, grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, I'm not that up on gardening. You really don't have to, okay? You don't have to be a botanist to follow his logic. 
You've got this other kind of plant that doesn't really belong, but the, the care and the precision of that master gardener was able to get these non-belonging branches in. How easy would it be for that master gardener to bring back branches that belong naturally to that tree? So now you start thinking, huh, is he done with Israel? This whole thing about provoking jealousy? What's, what is he going to do? Here's the hope in verse 25. Again, reminding the Gentiles, don't, don't be proud, don't be arrogant. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, this thing that wasn't revealed before, but now in the New Testament, this revealing has happened. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's unpack a couple things really quickly there, really quickly, and then we'll conclude this chapter. He wants the Gentile readers, he's still talking to the Gentiles from verse 13, and he's trying to help the Gentile readers, the non-Jewish readers, understand that God has this plan with the hardening. He's not just hardening because he's mad at them. He's not just letting them stay ensconced in their lostness because he wants to revenge on them. But he's using that hardening to bring in a group of Gentiles and then when enough of the Gentiles has come in, then he's going to save Israel. I think that's the best way to read this. Now, this is a, a hotly debated text, and you all can poke around on Google and go as far down that rabbit hole as the Lord allows you time for. It's a, it's a great thing to research and understand, but it is hotly, hotly debated. I don't want to lay out four or five different views, and you know we'll be here until CFC course tonight. Um, we'll have to cater in food and everything. It'll be, it'd be wild. Um, let me just tell you what I think it is. Okay? I think Paul is talking to ethnic Gentiles, and he's referring, in his conversation to ethnic Gentiles, he's referring to ethnic Jews. And that God's partial hardening upon ethnic Israel, in verse 25, is for a purpose... Part of that purpose is so that Gentiles can come in. And in God's mind only, he knows when that number is full. We, we cannot take a, a census and, and figure out how many, how many Gentiles. We don't have a number. We don't have a time. This is in God's mind only. But Paul is revealing just enough of the mystery for us to understand that the hardening that's come upon Israel is temporary and purposeful. The purpose is twofold. One, to bring Gentiles in. Bring them in from all over the world. And then when that reaches its fullness, Jesus is going to save Israel. In other words, that partial hardening is going to be lifted and there's going to be a revival in Israel. Now, I am not pinning that to the calendar. I'm not going to publish a book that says, you know, uh, 50 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 2050 and then show you demographic numbers from Israel and politics. That is way, 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 all of that is way beyond what we get from the text. We don't know what the fullness of Gentiles looks like. What should we concern ourselves? Saving Gentiles. And once that happens, 
It doesn't mean we don't evangelize Jewish people, don't talk to them about the Lord. That would run contrary to everything Paul was saying in the beginning of chapter 11. Paul got in. There's, there's a remnant that persists. So it's not that all of Israel is now lost. Every single individual who's a, Jew, a Jewish is lost. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, every single individual without exception will be saved. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is on the whole, they're lost. And there will come a time where on the whole, they're in. On the whole, they're in. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen through Jesus Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion. Now, some people say, see, he's saying Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, all Israel comes to Christ. And that gets real messy. Because now you have this king riding the horse, and he's coming on the clouds, but the Israelites aren't saved yet, so he preaches a sermon, they're saved. Or he raptures the church secretly. And while everybody's like, what happened to our airline pilots? Why are all these planes crashing? If you're familiar with Left Behind series, whatever. Okay. I don't know. Y'all looking at me blankly. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. It's, that series is old. And then in this weird in-between time, Israel turns around and then Jesus comes again, again. Now again, I think it's too much to squeeze into this text. When he quotes the Old Testament that says the deliverer will come from Zion, from that prophet's perspective, Jesus' first coming hasn't even happened yet. So Paul is saying in the Old Testament, it was promised that a Messiah would come from Zion, a Jewish Messiah, and he will eventually banish ungodliness from Jacob. He doesn't give us timelines. He doesn't say first coming, second coming, or anything like that. We don't have to press this into any mold of eschatology or what we've been taught about end times. We just have to recognize that it at least clearly is saying there is a turnaround, I think, a turnaround for ethnic Israel in the future after enough of Gentiles come in. What's enough? We don't know. And how that's going to happen is not some separate track. Gentiles need Jesus to be saved. Jews just have to be Jews to be saved. No, 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 no. That's why they're lost. But they will embrace the Messiah as their king, as their Lord, as their Savior. In the meantime, it's time for Gentiles to come in right now, in droves. Not that Jews will never come in, but it's going to be a minority for a while. Here's how he finishes it. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. This is recap. Israelites right now are enemies to the gospel, not enemies to you, but they're enemies to the gospel for your sake, so you can come in, the Gentiles. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's going to graft them back into this tree. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. One step backwards for Israel, for two steps forward. They will be granted mercy in the end. Why? Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In that way, there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. We all are disobedient. One group can't point to the other group. Ah, you killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. He died for our sins. Everybody's disobedient. And God uses that disobedience to demonstrate his mercy not on every existing individual, we've already seen that. But what he means by all is all ethnicities. Jews, 
and Gentiles will both receive the mercy of God before it's all over. Man, am I tempted to go into the next paragraph. We're going to save that for next week. Really quickly, reflections on this is one, we shouldn't be arrogant with regard to our position before God. And two, we need to be much more humble with regard to our eschatological positions, when Jesus is returning and what that's going to look like. And three, most importantly, I think the main takeaway is to be the beautiful feet that bring the good news to everybody. Jews included. But as the Gentiles are coming in, let's be a part of that as a church. As God is bringing in Gentiles, let's be a part of that, that unfolding of the kingdom by baptizing, making disciples, and don't forget, going. Going and making disciples. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in a song of worship and a song of praise. Uh, we ask that um, you would give us... Um, a sense of ease with regard to the things that we can't figure out, patience with those who might disagree with us on smaller bits of interpretation within what we just read, but give all of us hearts for the lost, that we would be a part of your unfolding plan to graft in all kinds of branches from all kinds of places. Um, what, a, what a beautiful thing that we don't have to uh, try to figure out who's reachable but that you, you, you do the reaching through the message proclaimed through your people, Lord. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to get a better vision of you even as we close in this song. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close